was the summer of 2003. I was a young man, single guy in my 20s, and I was hot to trot over a gal named Holly. Now, I'd had my eyes on Holly for a number of years, but the time had never been right. She was off away at school, or she was dating some guy, but the summer of 2003, she was about to graduate. She was back here in Kansas City. We were serving together at a family camp, and the opportunity to impress her arose through an invitation by Glenn Kaler, who said, hey, do you want to go out on a ski boat? Now, I pride myself in being an above-average skier. And so when Holly was in, of course I was in, and it wound up just being the three of us. And so we went out and Holly, you know, being the gentleman, I said, you can go first. So Holly was the skier, Glenn was the boat driver, and I was the spotter. And Holly was super cute, out on two skis. She was uh, confident but cautious And I knew that I could step up my game and she would be duly impressed. So when the time came for my turn, I was out. I was cutting in and out of the wake, did a few passes, and I could just tell she was being wooed with every wake that I jumped. But I still had one more trick up my life-jacketed sleeve. And so just so that she would know I didn't accidentally fall, I threw the rope in the air sunk down into the water, and by the time the boat came back around and Glenn asked, "Uh, are you done? I said, no. Handed up one ski. I'd like to go on one, I said. Because ladies, who can resist a man who can slalom? (laughs) Am I right? I mean, am I? Thank you. Thank you. Needless to say, I was very impressive. And so, this was all going great, but here were a series of tragic miscalculations. Because if you've ever gone skiing, particularly on one ski, like when you have two skis, you can keep your balance, but that's not the hardest thing. The hardest thing about going on one ski is all the drag that you have just on this one ski to get up out of the water. There's a lot of drag, a lot of pressure, which makes it really important that you have a tried and tested swimming suit. (laughs) With a drawstring that is tight enough. These were not things I was thinking about at the time. And so as you can probably already guess, when Glenn gunned it to get me out of the water, I came up and my shorts did not. (laughs) Now we all have a most embarrassing moment, right? Well, this is mine and it made the sermon today. So remember, there are uh, three people around other than the family who's coving who have access to this uh, encounter. We have me, the skier, Glenn, the driver, and what is Holly? She's the spotter, exactly. And so as Glenn tells the story, he's driving, he can't see me, but what he sees in his periphery is Holly's jaw drop. (laughs) Eyes get wide open, and he just says, shorts dropped, huh? (laughs) And that's where I learned the importance of girding yourself with a belt of truth. That's our topic today. (laughs) Now, fortunately, the good news is that God is graceful, and six months later, Hall and I started dating. Within two years, we were married, and as of Tuesday, July 16th, we'll celebrate our 14th anniversary. Yeah. So if that's not a testimony that there is a God, I don't know what is. 
So we're in the second part of a series we're calling Suit Up. Do you see what I did there? (laughs) And I wanted to start with a little levity. And believe me, the story will tie in later, don't you worry. Um, But it's it's a critical series. It's a difficult series. We've been in the book of Ephesians for probably a year now, and we're at the very end of this book, and we get to a passage that makes many of us uncomfortable. And if you were here last week, you recall that. It's a passage about spiritual warfare. It's a passage that talks about how there's a realm beyond what we see and touch and experience, and there's more going on than we can uh, see with our own eyes. It's a world of good and a world of evil, a world that includes God, but a world that includes the devil and demonic forces. And so I'm going to read the passage that we looked at last week, and I'm going to share the image that we're using, uh, and then I'll talk about the idea of truth today. Sound good? So here's our passage from last time. This is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. And Paul says, a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Now believe me, this isn't the passage that I would have chosen to speak on. Uh, but it's so critical and significant. See, it's easy in our day to, to do one of two things, to either, uh, either just dispel the idea of the enemy or the devil or spiritual warfare, or just to say it doesn't happen, or to have an unhealthy fascination or obsession with this thing. And the truth is, either of those are different than the reality that Scripture says that there is a spiritual battle, that we have a God who has actually won the battle, but there are still evil forces out there, hell-bent on leading people and leading the world astray. See, it's a critical aspect of the worldview of Jesus and of the writers of the Scripture, and it's really important that we look at this passage, try to understand it and relate to it today. And so Paul gives us this image, and the image that he uses here when he's thinking about the spiritual battle is this one, Maximus. Okay, we've seen gladiator, right? Some of us have. So this is a general who became a slave, a slave who became a gladiator, and the gladiator defied an empire. It's a wonderful 20th century representation of a Roman legionnaire. And you may be familiar with this idea, either by reading scripture or just the the writings of history. Because if you know anything about the Roman Empire, you know it was built on the backs of the strongest army the world had ever seen. These legions of soldiers kept Rome in power for over a thousand years. And when Rome uh, ceased being in power, it was both because of political unrest and the weakening of the army. 
So the Roman legion was made up of the Roman legionnaires, individual soldiers. These were were all Roman citizens. These were all men. These were men who were the best trained of any in that day. When one signed up to be a Roman legionnaire, you were giving 25 years of your life to the cause. You would go where you were asked to go. You were trained to the hilt, and you were given the best uh, strategies, the best armor possible. And so it would have been commonplace in this day, in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, in all the, Rome, the known world at the time to see these uh, Roman legionnaire soldiers walking around, this fearful, this, this powerful strength, and each of these trained, cunning warriors was adorned in armor from head to toe. So this is the image that Paul draws on when he says, be ready for the spiritual battle. So he says, grab the breastplate of righteousness. Guard your heart, he'll say. We'll talk about that next week. Put on the helmet of salvation. Guard your minds. Grab that, uh, the shield of faith to extinguish the wiles of the enemy. Adorn your feet with the sandals of the good news so that you can go where you're asked to go and share when you're asked to share. Strap on the sword of the Spirit, it says, the only offensive weapon, by the way, in the arsenal, which calls uh, the Word of God. And then the last thing it says, which is actually the first thing, it says, stand firm then with the belt of truth around your waist. Stand your ground putting on the belt of truth. See, truth is very important. Paul's saying, uh, before you put anything else on, put on the belt of truth. I assume it's, you know, in contrast to the drawstring of relativity. That's just my, my guess. Well, what would it look like to put on our belt of truth? We need to step back and ask the question, what is truth? Why is it so important? How can you and I today, in an age that is increasingly has no idea what truth is, How do we hold on to truth in our day? Well, I would suggest the idea that truth is foundational. It's essential. If we are going to stand our ground, it all starts here. Truth, as it can be defined, is just simply this. That which is true and is in accordance with fact or reality. So truth is not subject to opinions or preferences. It's about facts. It's about things that, that are solid and real. And truth is ultimately about the very nature of reality itself. See, truth is the first of the building blocks on which we can understand our lives and the world and anything else. And based upon the sure and solid foundation of truth or lack thereof, the rest of the building either stands or falls. Truth is about the facts, not opinions. It's not about what it appears to me to be, but the reality behind it. Now, the reality is many people in our culture and even in our churches today, like we're okay with the idea of truth when it comes to things like the laws of mathematics or of physics. I mean, no one talks about gravity as like, oh, that's the opinion of gravity. No, that's the law of gravity. It has to do with a reality that doesn't matter if you agree with or not. If you're falling from a two-story building, you see the important reality of truth. So we're okay with that, but when it comes to the idea of morality or of ethics or of worldview or of faith, 
in our culture and even in our churches, there's this sense of there really is no truth. The only absolutely true statement that we might agree with in our culture is, hey, it may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Would you agree with that? We live in a society that has lost a mooring in truth. And therefore, we've lost the entire foundation that gives us strength to stand. Would you agree with that? And so, particularly in the last, I don't know, three to five years, increasingly you hear people talk about our culture, really smart people, who say that we are a post-truth society. A post-truth society. And in January of 2018, the Barna Research Group, uh, these really smart uh, statisticians who look at trends in culture, uh, take polls of real people and then share their insights, uh, asked the question, what are the cultural and spiritual reasons that the world is no longer in agreement on anything? Why can't we agree? And they, they boiled it down to three things. This was like a year-long study. This was like their benchmark of 2018. Actually, looking back at 2017 into 2018, they said three things. Why we can't agree on anything, why we live in a post-truth society. First thing they said was a distrust of the media. A distrust of the people who are giving us information about the world. So, in a world of fake news or alternative facts or info wars, where uh, truthful hyperbole is just sort of the way of the, the game, it says that's the first place that has caused us to have lost any sense of a mooring in truth. The second thing that they would say, that the Barna Research Group said, is that the bifurcated political climate has been the second thing that has caused us as a culture to just throw our hands up in the air and not agree on anything. See, we don't live in a society that allows for debate. There are two sides, two camps. We vilify one another, put our own spin on everything, Essentially, say what we want to say and then hire people to find facts that corroborate that. And this is true in the landscape of our political and social structures. Now, these things, to be sure, are outside of us, people like you and I, most of us. But there's an even greater thing that undergirds all of them that Barna would say is a reason we've lost any sense of truth. And he would just call it this, the sacred self. We are a culture who has elevated the individual, our own needs, desires, preferences, and saying that's the most fundamental and foundational thing. What's truth? I define my own truth. I define it. We call that relativism. We live in this post-truth society. We're living in it. We're swimming in it. And it has unmoored us from reality itself. And so many of us feel helpless and alone. June June article of this past year in the Atlantic, uh, not a faith-based perspective by any stretch, but it was saying, looking at this climate, it had this to say. This is an urgent matter. And it makes this a dangerous moment because without truth and a common factual basis for our national life, a free society cannot operate. 
And right now, for a significant number of Americans, including many people who long defended the concept of objective truth and repeatedly rang the alarm bell about the rise of relativism, truth is viewed as relative rather than objective, malleable rather than solid, as instrumental, as a means to an end, as a weapon in our intense political war. Does this ring true for you? I know it does for me. How do you know you're in a post-truth society? Well, we may have Barna research that helps us understand it, but I would suggest it's something that can be felt. When we are unmoored from a reality beyond ourselves, it can feel like we're alone, shipwrecked, and lost at sea. It can feel like we've climbed a ladder or are on top of a high place and lose our footing and are in a free fall. It can feel like we're standing in an earthquake and it's just shaking. There's no foundation on which to stand. Or we may, it may look like everything's okay on the outside, but we may feel unmoored. We may feel like if people knew what was actually going on, we actually feel naked and exposed. This is what happens when a people, when a society gets unmoored from truth. The very ground in which we stand is shaken and we feel powerless in which to stand. Does that ring true for you? rings true for me. So one more just graphic kind of from the Barna Research Group. This is the way our culture views truth. There are 35% of folks who would say there is an absolute sense of truth, a reality beyond themselves. That's about one in three in our culture. More, 44%, say that truth is relative. At the end of the day, it's kind of what you make of it that you are ultimately the surest, strongest foundation for truth. And then about 21%, one in five, have never thought about it. And essentially, they, they don't feel moored to any sort of truth beyond themselves. So let's throw up that graphic one more time. And I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but take a look at that and locate yourself there. Are you someone who believes in a sense of truth that's higher than you? Does that moor you to reality? Are you someone who would say, no, truth be told, I believe truth is relative. And if so, how firm does that feel for you? Or you may just be in that honest place of, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's even why you're here. And so I want to say wherever you are at is an okay place to be. But if you're feeling unmoored, if you're feeling like the ground underneath you is shaken, if you feel tossed in a sea where there isn't constancy in truth, I believe you've come to the right place. And so it's in a world not very different from ours that Paul comes in and he says, hey, there's more going on here. There is a sense of ultimate reality. There's a sense that there's more going on than the trials and tragedies you experience. And so we go back to our passage in Ephesians chapter six, verse 10. And here's what Paul says. Finally, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. 
Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. So stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Has there ever been a culture or society or people who need a passage more than, like this more than we do now? Three brief things I think this passage says. First is in verse 10. We're told, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. See, if, if as an individual, you and I are the ultimate authority on truth, whatever we make it, that's a pretty slim, small foundation. But as followers of Jesus serving the God who created the universe, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. There's a sense in this passage, it's passive. It's not a matter of just being strong. It's a matter of we have strength. Be made strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. There's an objective reality beyond us, beyond us that moors us, that gives us a sense and a strength. And we can be made strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Second thing this passage says, and you may have picked it up, how many times it says, stand firm. Stand your ground. Stand. If you feel like there's nothing in which to stand on in our culture, if you feel lost and helpless and alone, if you feel unmoored because of a sense of we don't have truth in our society, Paul would say this, you can stand firm. You can stand your ground. It's not based upon you, but you can stand firm in the Lord and in his mighty power. And when there comes the day of assault, we all have good times where things are going well and and that's great. But there are a few times when the days of evil come and they hit too close to home. And if we are unmoored from God and his truth in that day, there's no way in which we can stand. But if we have a firm foundation and the truths that are found in God and Christ through his spirit. When that day of evil comes, when the spiritual battle rages, when it threatens to take us down, we can stand firm. Stand firm. And so we go back to that image that Paul is speaking about, that image of the belt, belt of truth. And I don't think it's an accident that this is the first thing that Paul speaks of when it comes to putting on the armor of God. You know, the belt is not an offensive or a defensive weapon, but without it, none of the rest of the armor fits. The belt is there for the purpose of security. If uh, a soldier would go out into battle without a belt, he'd trip over himself, or he could be worried about becoming naked or exposed. But when he would strap on that belt of truth, it creates security. It creates the ability to move in times when he needs to move so that a tunic would be long and and when it came time to march long distances or to prepare for battle, the soldier would take the tunic, tuck it into his belt and be able to move freely and unhindered. The belt of truth gives security. It gives the ability to move diligently and with agility, no matter the circumstances. And maybe most important, the belt anchors in reality. 
the belt had an ability to anchor the rest of the armor. The breastplate, so important for the armor, had to be connected to the belt or else it wouldn't fit. The sword, the dagger, the other essential uh, elements of, that a soldier needed to carry were strapped on to this belt. See, I think often we in the church get it wrong because we think that the cultural war we're about with truth uh, is about taking the weapon of truth and wielding it to bludgeon people. Nope. The belt is beyond us. It's not our deal. It's not offensive or defensive. It's rooted in the reality of God. And that's how we can be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So when it comes to the belt of truth, it's absolutely essential that we strap that on before we do anything else. Because if we don't, if we don't put on that belt of truth, as the text says, we have absolutely nothing on which to stand. Without truth, we have absolutely nothing on which to stand. But here's the good news. We have a God who is truth, who has chosen to speak that truth to us. One of the ways he does so is through the Bible, through his scriptures. And there are over 200 individual passages about truth. And so to read them all, we're going to be here for a while. Just kidding, I have five that I think are really significant for us to see. Here's what the scriptures say about truth. The writers of the psalm says, guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my savior and my hope is in you all day long. All your words are true, all your righteous laws are eternal. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. So not only is there truth, but there's a God through his spirit who wants to guide us in understanding and claiming that truth. But it's not just conceptual. Truth is embodied in a person. That person is Jesus, and he had this to say. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this isn't meant to, uh, you know, stand in the way of everyone. It's not meant to be do's and don'ts or a none shall pass to get to God. No. Jesus said, if you come and follow me, if you hold to my teaching, you're my disciples, and then you will know the truth. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We're a culture who needs to know the truth. We're a culture who needs to be set free. We're a culture that's starving to have a belt of truth that roots us in a reality that is beyond ourselves. And when Jesus says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free, just about 10 verses later, he's confronting a group of people who think they've got it right. They're the group of Pharisees, and yet they're so convinced of their narrow way of, of viewing truth, and they're, they're using it to, to take people captive. And so Jesus has a staunch critique of them. He says, for you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. 
He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So in these passages, we have this juxtaposition of a God who is truth, of Jesus who embodies the truth, and of this truth that sets us free. And the opposite, the enemy, the commander of the evil spiritual legions, who's what? He's a liar. There's no truth in him. He hates the truth. He's the father of lies, and elsewhere, the enemy Satan, the devil, is described as the deceiver of the whole world. So here and now, we get to make a choice. And living in a world full of brokenness, a world where we have no uh, moorings in which to put our feet, a world that is full of evilness, I just got to think, does the devil have us just exactly where he wants us? So what do we do? What do we do in a society that is unmoored for truth? Well, the good news is there's hope. Why? Because there's a God. There's a God who is truth. And so Art Lindsley, in a book called True Truth, just helps us reframe our picture of truth and reality. Very simply, he says this, truth is what corresponds with reality as perceived by God. Truth is that which corresponds with reality as perceived by God. Because unlike us, you and I and humanity, there's a God who created everything who, just as he wanted it to be. And there are laws of nature and he's spoken the way that the world is supposed to work. He sees, he has clairvoyance over everything. There is more that's going on than we see. And he's God over all of it. And so truth is that which corresponds with reality as perceived by God. And that's really important. Scriptures speak to that truth. But unfortunately, so often Christians, followers of Jesus, people like you and I, we trip over truth and we take the world along with us. Because people is misguided people. We can fall on one side. We can say, hey, I'm the truth. I'm the only one who knows what that is. I believe in relativism. And we have nothing on which to stand when it comes down to it. Or we can take these concepts and we can create structures and a religious way of looking at it. And then we can think that by our own goodness or our own knowledge of the truth, we can take that and then bludgeon others to death with it. And unfortunately, that has left many broken, battered, and bruised. So just because there is truth and it's beyond us doesn't mean that we can hold truth captive and beat others with it. See, Art Lindsley, who said, hey, there's the drawstring of relativism that's leaving the culture, leaving you and I unmoored from reality. Absolute truth isn't the opposite of that, Winsley would say. No, absolutism is the, ab the opposite of relativism. When we think we know the truth and we bludgeon others with it. He has this, and I think it's really profound and powerful because if we're not careful, 
in our day, we can become like the Pharisees in Jesus' day who thought they knew the truth but missed the heart of God and even missed Jesus when he came. And so Lindsley says it like this. Absolutism might be defined as being synonymous with a cluster of characteristics, arrogance, closed-mindedness, intolerance, self-righteousness, bigotry, and the like. Absolutists are those who think everything is black and white and who make few, if any, allowances for ambiguity and uncertainty. You and I know some characters who talk at you, not with you. They act as if they have the answer for everything, and in the process, if they claim to follow Jesus, they drive many would-be seekers away from Christianity. I'm convinced that this need to communicate a rejection of absolutism while continuing to defend absolutes is a new arena for apologetics, one not yet developed. We need to show not only how our beliefs do not necessarily lead to absolutism, but also how our faith is necessarily opposed to this oppressive approach. Even more, our faith in Christ provides an antidote, one that relativism lacks against oppression, arrogance, intolerance, self-righteousness, closed-mindedness, defensiveness, and other such devices. A healthy knowledge of Christ and his word is the total cure. If we are successful in dismantling the kinds of psychological obstacles mentioned above, we can then move on to a critique of relativism, and we must for the most important issue for church and culture in the 21st century is the issue of truth. So Paul is saying there is a God and we're not him. Paul is saying God has spoken. He can be known. And we rely on him and in his mighty power. See, if we fall off into relativism, we think that we are our own self-reliance, and we trust in that, and it's so shaky and unstable. The drawstring of relativism doesn't work, and our society is living that out. But on the other end, there's the absolutism that equates, that that isn't self-reliant, but it's self-righteous as opposed to God-reliant. And we must beware that trap as well, because the casualty is so many in our culture. Has anybody ever heard of Charles Templeton? Probably not many. Anyone heard of Billy Graham? Billy Graham, one of the greatest evangelists of a generation, many came to faith, heralded by most to be an authentic, real example of Jesus who God used his life and work. Well, Charles Templeton was a good friend of his. They came to faith around the same time together, and many believed that it would be Templeton who would be the greatest evangelist as opposed to Graham. And yet, Templeton became unmoored by truth. He didn't understand the claims of Scripture. He couldn't see it lived out. He had intellectual challenges with it. But maybe more than anything, the thing that turned Templeton away was the absolutists of his time who demanded that truth not just be in God and his word, but in these systems that were too rigid. And in rejecting the systems, he wound up rejecting truth and he wound up rejecting God himself. How many people are like that in our day? Who are lost and unmoored, have nothing on which to stand, and yet when they encounter Christians, it just reinforces all the things that are confusing. They're like, well, I don't know, but I'm not gonna do that. 
So as I was thinking and praying, what, what should we say about truth today, other than it's really, really important? I had a few ideas. I thought we could recite the Apostles' Creed together. These would be those deep truths of God that the church has believed for thousands of years. But I didn't just want it to be an intellectual exercise. So I thought about, well, we have the essentials uh, of our faith as a church that we hold. And what I love as much about the concepts that are shared is this preamble, this heart behind it, that says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. So there are absolute truths that are essential that we need to uphold. But then there are other things, non-essentials, that we should be loving and generous and, hey, I don't agree with that, but I'm not going to vilify you for it. And then in all things charity, with those we disagree with, even vehemently disagree with, that we could treat with dignity, with charity, with honor, with humility, that would have been an appropriate reproach. But I decided to just say, God, what would you like people to know about truth? What would you like them to know? And as best I can tell, I had four things that I want to share with us briefly. First is this, there is a God and I'm not him. Can you say that with me? There is a God and I am not him. See, this is true of the scriptures, that there's a God, a loving creator who set the earth and everything in it into place. He's there, he's good, he's loving, and you and I were not him. There's an authority beyond ourselves. There's an objectivity beyond ourselves. There is a God, and I'm not him. And so if that's something that you personally can claim to own and agree with, I'm going to invite you just to say that with me one more time. And if you can't say this, that's okay. But I'd love for us to stand individually and collectively on a few of these truths. And so if you agree with that statement, say it with me one more time. There is a God, and I'm not him. It's really important. Second idea. Uh, there is one God, and he has spoken. Say it with me. There is one God, and he has spoken. So this isn't just a, a world created by a God who then became an absentee landlord and left us to our own devices. There's a God who spoke the heavens and the earth into place. He speaks truth. He sends his spirit to guide us into all truth. He has spoken. He speaks through his scriptures, and he continues to speak to you and I through his spirit today. He wants to make himself known, and maybe you're here today because he's had a way of drawing you to himself. And so I know we might not all individually believe this, but can you see the work of God in your life? Can you see him drawing you to himself and drawing him to truth? And even if you still have confusions about the, the fine points of what it means and, and all that, do you feel like you can say this as one of those ultimate anchoring reality statements? And if you can, no pressure, but if you can, Let's state this truth together. Here we go. There is a God and he has spoken. That means this God can be known. And here's the third truth that I think is so significant for us. There's one God and he has sent Jesus, his son. Can you say that with me? There is one God and he has sent Jesus, his son. 
See, this is where it all comes down to. Truth ultimately isn't foundationally in concepts or in the mind alone. Truth is rooted in time and space, in history, in a person. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am. And Jesus says, when you get to know the truth, not only do the concepts set you free, but more importantly, I am the one who sets you free. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So if that's something that you believe you can say, in terms of an anchoring statement of reality, I invite you to say that with me now. There is one God, and he has sent Jesus, his son. Fourth truth that I think is objective, it's absolute, it's foundational, and more than that, I think it's what Jesus and the Father and the Spirit want to say to us is this. Jesus is Lord, and in him, you and I can become son or daughter of God. Jesus is Lord, and in him, you and I can become a son or daughter of God. Such an important truth, the truth that wants to be known to reveal himself to us is living and available. It's found in Jesus, and he wants to draw all of us, you and I, home. In a minute, I'll give you the opportunity if you choose, to state that as one of your core absolute truths with me. But before we do that, we have a real treat. See, the truth, or or truth can be seen and understood through the lives of real people who've come to saving faith in Jesus. And two weeks ago at our baptism, we got to see these truths in action. As, As many as 60 men and women said, There's a God, I'm not him. God has spoken, brought me to himself in some way. I've come to faith in Jesus' son and they're declaring before everyone in heaven and here in our church family that they are a child of God. And so if you missed, we wanna take you back to that moment, to that day, to that baptism. And as you see each face, see the truths and the reality, not just conceptually, but of the love of God in Christ who brought them home as sons and daughters of God. Let me It's amazingly powerful, isn't it? There's that verse that I want to say again and leave us with. In Jesus, we find the truth. And in the truth, he sets us free. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so those four core truths, I want to remind us. And you can please stand and we'll have our prayer ministers gather as well. There's one God and I'm not him. There's one God and he has spoken. There is one God and he sent Jesus, his son. And if you're at a place when you can say this fourth one, that it's not just conceptually true out there, but it can be true for you personally, then I want to give you the opportunity to say the last core truth with me. And if you do, if you do for the first time, because you want to be moored in something bigger than yourself. You've come to understand that Jesus is the one who is true, that he loves you and accepts you and wants to take you as his son or daughter. 
then you can come forward and just our prayer ministers will just share with you, encourage you, help you with your next step. And for all of us, again, you don't have to say this if it's not true of you, but do we have that slide, the, the, the one with the fourth verse that says, Jesus is Lord and I can become a child of God. That's the phrase, Jesus is Lord and I can be a son or daughter of God. If you can say that, join with me in that now. Jesus is Lord and in him, you and I can become a son or daughter of God.